Now, some people like ads, some people don't, and that's okay. But we like to keep everyone happy. So if you're one of the people who doesn't like to listen to ads, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And you can listen to this podcast just the way you like it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. The biblical deluge continues. It doesn't rain, but it pours. John is looking very, very demented. He's frustrated. He was out trying to look at the stars the other night. All he saw was clouds. That's it. And you know, well, I was trying to, you know, the shooting star season every August. It's fantastic. But not only that, Mac, but beginning of the summer, I invested. You know, we had a few nice days in end of May, beginning of June. I invested in all these shirts, short sleeve Hawaiian shirts. Can't wear them. Can't wear them. They're it stuck in my wardrobe. It, it must be said, it is a look, John. It is a look. <laughs> Middle-aged man in a Hawaiian shirt. Anyway, oh, yeah. not to worry. Well, you're in good, good form. Listen, it'll all be over soon. Everyone will be back to school and we will have forgotten the fact that it'll last for the whole summer. Yeah, we've forgotten the fact that we had a summer. Yeah, yeah. We had a summer. We had a summer. But John, today I want to talk about, you know, the last couple of weeks we've been doing the European tour, right? Yeah. We're going to take a break and we're going to talk about China because it has been bubbling away under the surface for a number, a couple of years now, but certainly the last few months, particularly since the blanket COVID policy of the Chinese. Mm. The idea the world thought, well, hold on a second, they had this massive lockdown towards the tail end of COVID. I, I mean, global COVID. Yeah. People thought Chinese economy will rebound. The Chinese economy will go back to do what it does best, which is growing. Supply chains will be back to normal. Exporting, manufacturing, all that sort of stuff. And whatever fears there are about the Chinese real estate market, which I'll tell you about in two seconds, they'll all be assuaged and we'll be back to growth. But yeah. what has happened now is there is deflation in China, which means prices are falling, which means demand is falling incredibly quickly. A whole host of Chinese real estate companies have defaulted on the repayments to their investors. Yeah, there's a fair bit of talk about China lately. Like, what, what's going on? What's changed there? I'll tell you how it works in China. So it, it works like a giant Ponzi scheme. Right. So the average Chinese person has had very little experience up until the late 1990s with real estate. And the reason is, in a communist country, you couldn't buy any real estate because that was technically against the law because you were... Yeah, of course, it. yeah. 
Yeah. So once real estate became a thing in China, what many, many average Chinese people is they invest in what's called trusts. So at the end of the week or the end of the month, your payslip would come. And whatever way you wanted to save, a guy from the trust, right? And I just imagine this, would say, you give us your savings in one, okay? So you give us, let's say, your equivalent of your $200, right? You're an average mm. worker who's working incredibly hard. You're saving loads and loads and loads of money. We promise you 8% per annum. You give us that and all will be hunky-dory. So they'd amass hundreds and hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars worth of Chinese currency. And then they would give this. It's exactly what happened in Ireland during the 2008 crash, right? All yeah. the way up there, 2004, 2005, 2006, all sorts of snake oil salesmen said to people, give us your money. We'll put it in property you can't lose. Same yes. carry on, right? Yeah, exactly yeah, the same yeah. carry on, right? And in the first couple Did the of lads years, here just move over to China? <laughs> exactly. It's all this called, called Phelan. There's a fellow called Senan and there's a fellow called Dara, right? And Dara, Phelan, and Senan, they were working for the bank that will remain nameless, Anglo Irish. And they were down in the West Lower and they have now relocated to Shenzhen. They've adopted Chinese pseudonyms, but it's exactly the same shite. Yeah. Right? So imagine Phelan, the Chinese equivalent of Phelan, who was, you know, a dub supporter, decent skin, into the GAA, probably played. O'Connell school boys, right? O'Connell yeah, school. Yeah. Or Joey's. <laughs> jo- yeah, Joey's, Joey's a fair view. The school that gave us Charlie High. Right. right. So, <laughs> yeah, okay. so he goes over to China. Same carry on. He's got good, good suit on. He's good patter. Good salesman. He's taking people's money. He says, don't worry about it. I'm going to give you a guaranteed income of 8% per annum. So the average dude says, great. Now, in the first two years, you get your 8% per annum. So what do you do? You tell your mates, there's a fella called Phelan down the road. Yeah, we all pile in. He can get you 8%. And your man says, really? He says, yeah, the last two years, here, look at these accounts. 8%. I gave him 100 quid. He gave me 8 quid back. So you imagine (laughs) the same shots happening exactly in the equivalent of a GAA club in China, right? And they're all talking about people are having scoops, right? So suddenly, you know, that great expression, nothing so undermines your financial judgment as the sight of your neighbor getting rich. Yeah. JP Morgan? JP Morgan, exactly the yep. same thing happens in China. So the the, 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 the Chinese equivalent of Phelan, Dara, Senan, and Finon, Finon. So Phelan, Dara, Senan, and Finon, right? They are over in China. So same thing. So in the first decade of the property boom, all those stuff were generating 8%. Yeah. People, people were very, very happy. People were making money, property price going up more and more and more. But what tends typically to happen then is once the property market peaks, the trust funds try then to liquidate property in order to pay back the people who've given them money. Mm. And then you get the downward cycle, whereas the more they liquidate, the more prices fall, the less people they can pay, the more people start to get antsy. Once people start to get antsy on the way down, they start looking for redemptions. They go to Phelan and Senan and Dara and say, listen, I'd actually like out of this thing. Can I have my money back? And yeah. Phelan says, look, sorry, mate, you'll have to wait for a while. So suddenly yeah. the public conversation- Or you conversation, can't find Phelan. <laughs> yeah, you can't. Well, Phelan's disappeared. He's now, he's gone back to Ireland. He's back, yeah. <laughs> he's back in O'Connell School as we speak, right? So Phelan, you know, actually that's one of the amazing things about the Irish property crash and, and, and the banking crash, right? Go Everyone on. Said that they're all privately educated Southside boys who ran those banks. They weren't. If you actually look at them, they all went to Christian Brothers schools. All the chief executives. That's just Christian Brothers schools. 
That's this, the problem with the Christian your, brothers. That's one for your sociology. Anyway, so imagine, so basically somebody goes and says, look, I want my money back. Your man says, oh, you'll have to wait a while. We don't have it. He goes back to the pub. He says, you remember your man who said he's give you 8%. He's now won't give me the money back. And the herd mentality that went into them sucks yeah. straight out of them. So that's the sort of thing that's happening in China. It's no different to any other country. Everyone behaves the same, right? Yeah. So what the government did in China was to say, okay, we know there is a problem of liquidity. Irish listeners will remember in the banking crisis, they said, oh, don't worry, it's only a liquidity problem. It's not a bankruptcy problem. So the government in China have just printed money and thrown it at these trusts, right. giving yeah. them cheap loans so they can pay back the actual investors. So the actual the investors- The bailouts, same bailouts. Precisely. So there's been an ongoing bailout in China, right? Over mm. the last about 18 months. The perception was that some stage this would stabilize credit markets, this would stabilize real estate markets, because people would realize, in a little bit like the Fed in America, there's an expression in finance, John, which is don't fight the Fed. So because mm. the Fed prints money, if the Fed says interest rates are going down, don't bet against them. Right now in the United States, the Fed is saying interest rates are going up, don't bet against them, right? Because they right. are the power. So the idea was that the same would hold true for the Central Bank of China, that they will stabilize the situation. But like all these situations, they can get out of control very, very quickly. And what is happening right now in China is it's beginning to get out of control. So there's a huge fear in credit markets, okay. the real estate markets. And of course, the banking system is entirely leveraged to the real estate market. So it's all intertwined and there's panic. That's why you see so many people selling their Chinese assets right now, so many international funds, right? By the way, in China, the international funds are always last. They're never first. The Chinese clever ones have got their money out. Okay, yeah, of course. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then you add that to this post-COVID trauma in China where the veil has kind of slipped and the veil, and we're going to talk to Adam Posen of the Peterson Institute in a second, right? Because he's written a fantastic piece in, in a magazine called Foreign Affairs, and we'll explain that to you in a second. But you take that fear in the banking system, the real estate world, the credit system, and you ally this to an understanding now on the part of the average Chinese that the Communist Party is not tolerating any dissent and it's going to mm. involve itself in your life. I mean, so, so they banned the poor LK pop people. It's, yes. like banning, it's like banning One Direction, right? <laughs> That's if not a bad United, thing. <laughs> if the United States government bans Taylor Swift, you know we're in the shits. So <laughs> but the Chinese parties, they've banned the Taylor Swifts of China, right? So they're clamping down on everything. And that situation, yeah. it's sort of an angst. All this is coming together at a time when there's geopolitical uncertainty, when they're in an alliance with Russia. I'm sure a lot of Chinese people are saying, why Russia? That doesn't seem like a very clever move, where the Americans are ratcheting up sanctions, particularly in the microchip area. So the Americans are looking for, for what they call chokeholds on Chinese supply chains. Mm. And they're trying to stop them getting access to microchips. All of this is creating a huge fear that maybe, just maybe, the Chinese miracle is over. And just to put that into context, the biggest story of our lives economically in the globe has been the rise of China. That's the big Yeah, one. absolutely has, yeah. And so we could be at a moment, and it's very important we do that today, and we allow listeners to digest this today, is that we could be at a moment where we witness the beginning of the end of the biggest story of the last half century. 
And that's the way we should look at this. Well, and in may order, you live John, in interesting times, eh? Well, as the Chinese say, may you live in interesting The last thing you want to do is live in interesting times. I want to live in really dull times, right? <laughs> yeah. There's nothing going on that I can sit yeah. on my Swiss and do nothing. But in that's a big, loud shirt. Are, yeah. In a yeah. big, loud Hawaiian shirt that's, that is sitting in the cupboard, in the wardrobe, <laughs> looking exactly. soulfully at me exactly. as I put on my anorak and go out for a walk <laughs> on the pier. Okay, so why don't we go, John, to America, to Washington, to one of the best think tanks in Washington, Peterson Institute, and talk to Adam Posen. Now, as you know, we have been doing our European summer tour. We just finished with Poland last week. We had Germany a couple of weeks ago, the UK, Spain, Italy, France. So you will excuse us for going to China because clearly geographically we are compromised in terms of our understanding of the globe. But we want to go to China because the Chinese story is unfolding rapidly. As I am speaking, Investors are selling Chinese equities, Chinese bonds. There is a, a lot of selling pressure on the Chinese currency. And that is because people have wised up to the idea that maybe, just maybe, things in China that were potentially a blip after COVID are not necessarily a blip. And people are reassessing the entire Chinese story. Now, just to put this in context before I speak to our guest, the Chinese story is basically the biggest economic story in the last 25 years, three decades you know that we in Europe tend to be obsessed with the fall of the Berlin Wall, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the many ramifications of that particular episode was a change in China, not direct consequence, but around the same time. And the opening of the Chinese economy and all things Chinese has really been the largest geopolitical story, certainly the largest economic story in the last three decades. And the question is, is it all coming to an end? Now, about three days ago, I read an amazing paper in foreign affairs, kind of a highfalutin magazine and fairness, wouldn't be for everybody, but a decent magazine, but highfalutin, right? And it was called The End of the Chinese Economic Miracle. And it is by our next guest, who's an old friend of the podcast, Adam Posen of the Peterson Institute in Washington, and he is on the line now. Adam, how are you? Lovely to see you. Thanks for having me back. It's a lovely podcast. Not, not at all. In fact, I was actually sharing your epic YouTube on Brexit with somebody just last night. I said to him last night, I said, just have a look at this. You will remember that uh, demolition of Brexit that you did in, I think, 2017, was it? Yeah, that was the only thing I've ever done that went viral as a video. But thank you for continuing to watch. <laughs> no, it was wonderful. And you were spot on then about the ramifications of Brexit and what it was likely to do to the UK economy, society and its political background. And now you've penned this piece, which is a wonderful piece, questioning whether or not we're looking at the end of this, as I was saying, this extraordinary three-decade-long march of China. Explain to me your thinking, Alan. To me, China has growth story of actually the last four decades is the greatest economic event of our lifetimes, even more than, as you said, the fall of the Berlin Wall. It lifted hundreds of millions of people, arguably a billion people out of poverty directly in China. It affected the fortunes and the well-being, mostly for the good of people around the world, including in the UK, Ireland, the US. And it has led to concerns about global security between the US and China, as well as economic conflict. 
President Xi, now in his third term and effectively president for life, unless he steps down, came in in 2013 looking like a reformer, or at least looking like someone who was broadly going to continue the market economy aspects that his predecessors had since Deng Xiaoping. Uh, Starting roughly around 2015, he reversed course. He started funneling more and more money to state-owned enterprises, using Communist Party anti-corruption measures and other measures to exert more influence over the private economy. And again, this wasn't a shock. The Communist Party was always in charge of China. But it started to eat into Chinese growth and make things a little less clearly good. My argument is that he broke what I call the no politics, no problem compact. This is similar to what we saw in Russia, in Turkey under Erdogan, in Venezuela initially under Chavez, that the authoritarians in power, but he and it's usually he, don't bother people in their day-to-day economic lives. In fact, they're in favor of growth, as long as you keep your political self down. So if you protest for democracy in Hong Kong or you protest on Tiananmen Square, yes, they'll come after you. But if you're just a small business person or a worker and you don't do anything political, sure, you can get rich, you can make your money, you can do what you want. With zero COVID, the draconian policy that she and the Communist Party put in place in response to the COVID pandemic He was shutting down whole cities on no notice, putting people out of work, shutting down businesses. It was an in-your-face to the average Chinese person about ultimately they were subject day-to-day to the Chinese party's power. And I think that's shown up in a surge in insecurity and fear among Chinese households. They've started putting a lot more money into bank accounts and more liquid assets. They've stopped buying durable goods. Small businesses are not expanding and investing. And this, if right, has implications going forward that China will be more volatile economic growth and grow less quickly going forward. Now, before we talk about the economic side, why would a leader who has been given, in effect, on a plate, a platform for an economy to grow, There wasn't a huge amount of anti-party political agitation. There wasn't a sense of insecurity. Why would you do that? I mean, this is what always intrigues me. You know the way uh, a lot of Westerners say, well, you know, the Chinese think in 200 years, 300 years, they don't have the same time horizon as yada, 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 right? I find that hard to believe. I think most people think about five minutes and 10 minutes like everybody else. That's the human condition. Why do you think... Xi has departed from something that was working pretty well? It's a fair question. And I'm frankly with you, David. I don't like these sort of cultural generalizations that Americans or Europeans make about China. I do think, however, there's a lot out there in by political scientists and analysts on China who point out how formative the Cultural Revolution experience was for President Xi. His dad was locked up, wasn't he? His, His dad, dad was, locked, was up. locked up and he was sent, he was purged from being a very, very major official and locked up. And he was sent off, she himself was sent off to go work in, I think it was a sugar processing plant on a farm out in the far Northwest and had real privation for several years. Now, many of us would come out of that and say, Ugh, we really don't want to repeat that. But it's been very clear by his own 
statements over the last several years of increasing frequency and fervor and actions that he thinks there were good parts of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. But I think the, the other way to think about it is places of political economy that we do know. That, to me, the, the economic miracle in China was that you had the succession of autocrat leaders from Deng and the various, I'm not going to try to pronounce all their names, the Chinese party heads that ran sure. up until Xi. Sure. sure, And they were dictators, but they were, again, they respected basically this no politics, no problem compact. And the idea that an all-powerful autocrat managed to hold back all those years is to me the miracle. And that let the Chinese, there's a lot of other stuff going on, obviously, but that fundamentally let the Chinese get on with it. And so do it's, it's the that thing about the Roman Empire. It's not, it's not how, how quickly it collapses, the fact that it actually lasted so long. Is the, uh, is that, yeah. that's, so you think the same thing. It's not, it's not that he, he switched, it's the fact that none of the rest of them switched in the same process. Yeah. So what we know about China from this sort of macroeconomic policy, I want to get back to your description of China having long COVID economically, which I love this expression, which you coined in that piece. But... We know that it's been printing lots of money. It has a very unusual relationship with money. It tends to throw money at problems, it tends to generate credit at will. The credit doesn't go necessarily through the banking system. It goes through a whole machination of government agencies. We know they have a huge oversupply of property, a huge oversupply of apartments, all that sort of stuff. Is that the only thing that you worry about or is there other things you worry about? Clearly, there's a lot of other problems out there. And so there's a number of people who've come out very strongly opposed to my assessment in this article. It's gotten a lot of attention, though not from China, which is another story. But there are some people, notably Michael Pettis, who's a well-known expert on the Chinese economy, but also my colleague at Peterson, Nicholas Lardy, who think I'm overlooking things. In, in Pettis and the other so-called structuralists, it's that there's been this accumulation of bad debt and misallocated capital for years and years and years. And so it's just a matter of time in a different sense. And they were fated to have a problem. Xi's behavior actually doesn't change very much. My colleague Nick Lardy is more of the camp. You're all overestimating the problems right now. Yeah, there's a serious problem in the banking, and not so much in the banking system, in the real estate sector, but it's within bounds and consumption isn't that far off what it used to be. And my view, as you invoke, I call it economic long COVID, is that there's going to be this persistent sluggishness and lack of response to stimulus lack of vitality in the Chinese economy for years to come because it was a turning point. So I think the breaking news that obviously came out after I had written, let alone published this piece about these enormous property developers in China having a problem is real. I also know that China and Japan and South Korea and other Asian countries have managed to roll over and get through those kinds of real estate problems. So I think it's a real thing, but I don't think it's the underlying issue. So are, are you saying that the underlying issue is this insecurity that has been in, injected, in a sense, into the population after the COVID response? So they suddenly realize we're not that free anymore. In fact, we're back to where we are. And the economics that we all assume is based on a certain amount of freedom, a certain amount of economic sovereignty, a certain amount of go-gettingness and dynamism of the people. And that has been mortally wounded by the COVID experience. 
Very well put. Yes, that is what I believe. And so when I have people, and Adam Tooze, the popular historian, has written this, you know, who say, how can you be ignoring the financial sector problems? Why are you so focused on this? And to me, I look at it and I see it the opposite way around. How can all these economic analysts be ignoring the enormous shock and change that she and the party leadership have imposed on China over the last several years? As you know, Adam, Bitching amongst the economic monastic fraternity is part of the background noise of oh, this absolutely, game. Absolutely, absolutely, it's, it's part this of the is, game, and this, you hear it on this, this program. <laughs> <laughs> and this is this is I've always thought that you know when when you go up to the higher level of economics, it's like you you go into the regions of theology. It's nothing to do with statistics or mathematics or our understanding of the way the macro economic works. It's based on the notion that every statistic has an agenda, as I said last week, and everyone has an agenda. But I want to tease this thing out because. We have on this program, it's, maybe it's because we're Irish and we've seen the economy take off, and et cetera, et cetera. Right. We like the link between this idea of a certain amount of economic and personal sovereignty and economic growth. That where yeah. you see when people are allowed to do their thing yeah. and back themselves, for want of a more descriptive word, things tend to happen. And those yeah. things tend to be positive. And they tend to happen at a time when the top man decides to actually disappear for a while. He's still around, but he's not interfering in your life. And I right. think, I think you, you, you see the world quite similarly. Yeah, I think it is, in logical terms, not sufficient. It's not the only thing you need for economic success to have people have the soft self-sovereignty and space, as you put it, to get on with their lives. But I very much feel that it is necessary that people have space to get on with their economic lives. And if you don't have that, then sustained growth is not possible. And that's why I contextualize or compare the recent developments in China to these other autocratic regimes, because we have seen repeatedly some of these countries that are very oppressive of people, oppressive minority groups, oppressive of political expression, but who have had good economic records. And if you look at it under the hood, it's because they do allow exactly that kind of space. And going back to Deng Xiaoping, there were very clear statements of guidance from him about allowing that kind of space and even experimentation across regions by different local governments. And this has been slowly, or not even that slowly, this has been steadily eroding since she consolidated power around 2015. And to me, it was still reversible, but now we're past what I fear is a, a point of no return, that it's going to be very difficult for the Chinese authorities to credibly tell people, we're not going to take away on a moment's notice your livelihood. I mean, they can say all they want. They can tell the the tycoons, you know, oh, we actually are in favor of the private sector. And they can say, oh, that was just COVID. We're not going to do it again. But the whole point of an autocrat versus a constitutional republic is you can't credibly promise you're not going to do it. In fact, you're probably not even going to admit you made a mistake and overdid it. I'm fascinated with the way, the way this plays out in the piece and the way, the, the way you see the end game. Tell me about demography, because I've only visited China five times, and I have been unbelievably, okay. unbelievably impressed. I was impressed by the dynamism. I was impressed by the change, like over two or three years. And, you know, you've heard it before, the new railways and the undergrounds, and the this, that, and the other. But there was extraordinary dynamism. What I was also surprised how fashionable the people in Shanghai were and how they were. Mm -hmm. But the ticking time bomb was demography. The fact that the country was getting 
old and old quickly. And people said, now, have a look at what happened to Japan. That's the way China's going to go because demography is dictating. Do you, do you buy that idea? I buy it partway. There's no denying the, uh, the demographic changes in the underway in China are very well known and are very powerful. Partly it's aging, as you said, that the because the fertility rates went down so much under the one-child policy, but then did not bounce back up very yeah. much when the one-child policy was lifted for a variety of reasons, including some positive things. So, so it's the, the one child of the one child, I always say. That's the problem yeah. with your one child. It doesn't stop there. Like, demography doesn't yeah. stop when you decide, oh, let's, let's all have kids, because you don't have enough kids to have kids. That's the problem. Well, and also they don't want to have kids because they're getting higher income and it's more expensive to raise kids and women are getting more options. And so there's that. But the other thing was during the one child policy, not quite to Indian levels, but there was a huge in demographic terms shift against daughters. So yes. in rural China, you know, they were aborting or getting rid of female children, female no, it, was it was femicide. It was femicide yeah. on, 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 a, on a large, yeah. large scale. And so that also skews things um, quite a bit. And for all the sexism in Japan or Korea, they did not engage in that. So the demographics is there. But if you go to Japan or Korea, the demographics is not preventing them from being dynamic economies. It, it's a drag. It shows up in some deflationary aspects. It may arguably show up in some slowness to adopt new technologies, but they're still innovating. And that's still true to some degree in China as well. I, I, I don't want to overstate this. The demographics is there, and you would have to compensate for it. But it's not the whole story. So give me the other bits of the story. Well, the other bits are primarily what we were already talking about, that the encroachment of the state on the private sector, and again, my argument about economic long COVID, that it is now very much into the average household, the average small business in a way it wasn't for a long while. That's big. You can deal with it, but this real estate crash, and importantly, the connections and dependence of local governments on real estate deals for revenue, that's big. And then in the background, there's, of course, the conflict over economics and security with the U.S. and some of, our, some of its allies, which means that both because of U.S. restrictions, but also because of the self-sufficiency drive and retaliation that she wants is diminishing markets, diminishing vitality, diminishing competition in China. So there's a bunch of things going on, but most of them could be dealt with if the party leadership hadn't undercut their credibility that they were letting the people get on with their lives economically. Now, anyone who's studied even vaguely Chinese history in the last hundred years, let alone going back further. There's always this myth, oh, well, China's been a unitary state for 3,000 years and the stability and continuity. And you kind of buy that until no, you actually read the no. history. Say, oh, no, my no, God, no, 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 no. This is an unbelievably <laughs> violent place. It is tumultuous. Yeah. They have they have political upheavals. They have civil wars. They have famines. I mean, China is totally the opposite of this long, continuous, peaceful reign that you hear people going on about. It's incredibly violent and political change happens very quickly. I mean, you're right, and there are 
obviously great things your listeners can read about Chinese history. I think that is part of why I talk about my version of what the miracle was and how it changed is it's kind of like Hobbes's Leviathan, which was written, as you know, and after the British civil wars, that if you have chaos, if you have civil war, you want a strong enough state to impose some kind of order. Absent that, nothing works. And so that's part of why the Chinese Communist Party has been able to do the things it's done since 1949, and particularly since after Mao since 79. But inherent in that, go back to Plato's warnings about dictators, you know, you have what I refer to in the article as the regression to the autocratic mean, that you can't withstand the temptation forever to start putting in your preferences, really interfering and overdoing it. And to me, that's the big change in China. Adam, let's, let's talk, how does this end? We started with the idea that I said it was a very big event, the Chinese opening. You said, no, David, it's bigger than you actually think, right? It is very normal for us to have Chinese students on the street in Dublin, for example. Yeah. We have everything we're doing this chat to probably is made in China. Bits are made in China. It's very normal for us to have China as a trading partner. It's very normal for us to, to listen to Chinese ideas, whether we take them on board or not. You know, China is part of our lives. And that has always come. This was never always perplexing me about the confrontation with America. It's always come within the American order, the globalization, the United States. I mean, the America and China had for a while been sort of complementary powers. Mm -hmm. That now seems to have gone on both sides. America's got much tougher. China's got much tougher. How does this play out? What's the central case, the posing central case for China, let's say going forward 10, 20 years? I am unfortunately rather pessimistic, but not doomsday. So what do I mean? I think if globalization continues to corrode in large part because of the U.S. in general, as well as the U.S. interactions with China, we're all going to be poor. The world's going to be more broken up into blocks and much more than trade barriers. We're going to be seeing a slowdown in productivity growth, a diminished flow of ideas and people and business relationships and capital across borders. And I think in that environment, it's not going to go well for China because you worry once you go down this kind of road that it becomes self-fulfilling. Well, if the Americans are doing that, we have to retaliate. Oh, if we're doing this, then the Americans will retaliate. And then suspicion continues to grow. I'm not saying there's no security threat from China and it's all due to the Americans. This is like discussions of the Cold War in the 50s, 60s, 70s. You have to find a way, if you want a good outcome, you have to find a way through diplomacy, through arms control of a kind, to damp it down or else it does take on its own dynamic. So, but when I look at China specifically and narrowly in economic terms, which is what I really know about to some degree, I view this as a very negative prospect for China, meaning declining trend growth rate meaningfully over the next several years, more volatility because when the government tries to stabilize things, people won't fully believe them that they're going to carry through or they're not going to change the policy or, or make the policy more intrusive, which will diminish the effectiveness of their policies. And ultimately, I think this is going to create more demand for exit. The political economist Albert Hirschman 
famously coined the idea of exit voice or loyalty. When you're in a system, you can choose to get out, you can choose to voice your complaints, or you can choose to be loyal and just suffer through it. I'm not suggesting that there's going to be millions of Chinese moving across the border. That's not going to happen. But I think increasingly over time, a lot of the smart money, a lot of the smart people, a lot of the business production is going to move abroad. And at the margin, that's going to threaten Xi and the party, and they're going to put up more barriers. And then that starts its own cycle, as we've seen previously in Latin America and elsewhere. The more barriers you put up, the more spooked people get. The more spooked people get, the more they try to get out. But that's just where I wanted to end, because it, it, it struck me reading the piece that, you know, in the 1960s, 50s and 60s, big countries like Brazil and Argentina had this extraordinary potential. Argentina had had yeah. its day, but Brazil was coming at this massive country, incredible potential beside the United States, momentum, all those things, right? And it ran aground in the 1970s, ran further aground into the 1980s. And we know the Brazilian story the last couple of decades. Is, is that the type of end game for China, that it, it simply stops growing? And when it stops growing, it stops being the country that everyone expected it to be, and it just becomes another large place of upper middle income people, uh, and it does that peacefully. Broadly speaking, that's the story I think that could happen. That's probably the most likely of various stories to happen. I'm very afraid that it might not be peacefully, certainly around Taiwan and the South China Sea and various other disputes in the area. I also am willing to quote, as ever, Adam Smith, there's a lot of ruin in a country, especially a country as economically advanced as China now is, where, as you mentioned, people in the first tier cities of Shenzhen and Guangzhou and Shanghai and Beijing are living at European or American standards of income, technology, and so on. So, I mean, that, none of that's just going to disappear. And I say in my article, no one should expect that this leads to a rapid fall of Xi or major change in the near term. But I do think that kind of grinding down of China's future is there. And it goes with what you raised earlier about demographics and some of these other long-term issues. If you have a vibrant private economy and you have a credible, competent, but restrained government, you can deal with those. If you have a very overly interventionist government and a less vibrant private economy, then those problems become worse. Can I ask just one last thing, Adam, before I let you go? When I see Xi and Putin, right, smiling and talking about the no-limits friendship, and I see Xi having a scrap with the United States, and I see the importance of the relationship with the United States to China, and the complete absence, really, of an importance of a relationship with the relationship with Russia and China. I see a rather idiotic foreign policy. Now, that's just one <laughs> man, one Irish man looking out at the world, right? I see very, I see it's very lopsided. I see there's nothing in it for China. A couple of, bit of cheap oil, but they get cheap oil anyway. You know, the Americans guarantee the price of oil in the world, in effect, through demand. And, you know, the Chinese have been piggybacking on that for years and years and years. And I'm thinking to myself, is that the movement of a genius or an adolescent? I think it's neither. I think it's the movement of a 
country making the best of its position. I, I mean, to the degree they have a good friendship with Russia, they don't have to have millions of troops on the Russia-China border, which they did for a very long time from the 60s into the 90s. If they have a relationship with Russia, they can essentially use Russia and its nuclear threat and its non-conventional threats to the U.S. to do bad things to the U.S. and Europe without having their fingerprints on it. I think if they're trying to insure, self-insure against sanctions, it's nice for them to have a relationship with Russia for various kinds of minerals and energy. So I, I think it's making the best of the hand they've been dealt. I am hopeful, maybe it's the wrong word, but I am expecting that over time, having the weaknesses of Russia as an ally will over time outweigh the benefits. I mean, think of Austria, Hungary, and Germany before the First World War, right? So Germany couldn't get France or Britain or Russia as an ally, and it was stuck with Austria. It was stuck Hungary. with Austria. And I, I, I can't remember what the German high command's expression was, but it wasn't about the Austrian army. It wasn't very far away from the Eisenhower quip that he preferred the German army in front of him than the French army behind him. Yeah, and I think we could get there. But for the time being, with the hand the Chinese have, and frankly, the aggressiveness of the Americans against them, I think they're playing their, that part of their hand reasonably well. Adam, we will leave it there. I think uh, all references to the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. We were talking, John, last week about Joseph Roth and the measures uh, yes. and uh, these wonderful novels about Galicia. You know, we're back there again. <laughs> who, who would have known? Who would have known we're back in the Austrian-Hungarian Empire? And that was fantastic, wonderful, fascinating. The fact that it has created a little bit of a bitch fight amongst the upper echelons of the economic world is all the better for it, all the better for it. As uh, they used to see, RAF had this uh, policy during the Second World War. They were asked about taking the flak, and they say, you only take the flak when you're over the target. Yeah, so that's a that's that's a much nicer line than being characterized as the French or Russian army. So thank you, David. <laughs> exactly. Merci, merci beaucoup. Thank you very much. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So as you were saying earlier, Mac, it's the end of the biggest story. China the is... The beginning of the end of the biggest story. Right, okay. Well, then this could take a while, could it? Or could this unravel really quickly? Well, I mean, you know... There's two kind of models of these unravelings. One is the kind of 1991, 92 end of the Soviet Union, which happened in weeks. Yes, in fact, yeah, it happened yeah. in days. It actually unravelled yeah. in days. And then there's the end of like the British Empire, which took a long, long time. And, you know, they were gradually pulling out of places and losing power and yeah. losing influence. But they were, it was kind of all being managed quite, quite well. So if you, if you imagine, you know, the Russian Empire disappears overnight. The British Empire takes a while. China is not an empire. That's the thing. It's not an empire. Yeah. It's a unitary state. But if you again, if, as I said to Adam, if you look at the history of China, even the 20th century, it's very violent. It's extraordinarily violent. Okay, whether it's fast or slow, what kind of impact is it going to have on the global economy? Like, how? What are the, the, the ripple effects? Well, it's, it's it's enormous because the first thing is what you will see is a flight of capital out of. China. And what I mean capital, I don't mean like just bonds and stocks and money, but what you will see is real companies. So you take a country like Japan. Mm. Japan in the 1980s and 1990s figured out they were getting very, very old. So they had decided that they wanted to have this policy of making Japanese stuff elsewhere to avail of cheap workforces. But then they realized that that would cause a lot of consternation, a lot of anger. If the Japs were just seen to be actually putting in plants, taking out money and selling, branding things in Japan. So the Japanese came up with this idea of produce where you sell. So they produce Japanese goods in China to sell to Chinese people, right? They right. change the branding, they change the title, they change everything. So they're trying to avoid that. In the case where the Chinese consumer begins to stop spending and unravels mm. as a force, then a lot of those that stuff will come out of China. That's the first thing. The Americans have also been doing this thing called friend-shoring, which is basically they're advising American companies to relocate countries that are friendly to the United States, right? Yeah. That means the West, Western Europe, Canada, Mexico, Western Europe, Ireland, these sort of countries. Yeah. So we would stand to gain enormously. But the most important thing is the deflationary impact of China on the world. And by that, I mean, you know, the fact that smartphones, cost of these has collapsed as a result of mainly China. If that were to stop, that would have a massively inflationary impact on the world. So the price of lots of consumer goods would go up dramatically. So it's a very fine, it's a very, very fine balancing act that we're at. And I think what we should do is we should keep this on the back of all our discussions, right? Is that, you know, this is like, for example, between 1870 and 1914, in the first era of globalization, there was an assumption that the world would always be globalized, that capital would be mobile, that Western countries could, via a combination of investment and imperialism, it must be said, yeah. extract resources from cheaper countries. And that was the way the world worked. Yeah, yeah. And that all collapsed in 1914, and we went into a different phase. So I think we should look at this as the same idea, that we've had 40 years of this extraordinary cheap boom from China, extraordinary cheap manufacturing and consumer goods. We've had a sense that China's part of the world. We have a sense that China's in the same game as us. Maybe that's all over now. And if it is, we just 
We know that David McWilliams podcast is watching you. Tell G when he's sitting there having his sweet. <laughs> See, mix. they're watching us actually. They're watching us. If we get jammed now, if there's a big signal, then that's it. And you go get back into your wine shirt, and let's hope for maybe a couple of days next week in the summer. Absolutely, maybe, hopefully. All right, boss. Talk to you Thursday. Take it easy. Good luck.